You are now listening to the Claim It Podcast with me, your host, Trisha Huffman, also known as your joyologist. On this podcast, whether I'm having a conversation with someone who inspires and intrigues me, or it's a solo reflection episode, my goal is for you to feel a little bit less alone on this wild journey of being human. I hope to give you some new and different perspectives or to remember some that you may have forgotten because we're humans and we forget, but you get to remember. (laughs) And for you to give yourself a shit ton more compassion for yourself and being a human on this earth with all of the shoulds and noise that come at us and from within us on a daily basis. This is your life. Stop making it even harder for yourself. On today's episode, I have award-winning TV writer, Laura Belgray. Her debut book, which is called Tough Titties on Living Your Best Life When You're the Effing Worst, comes out this week. And I am really, really excited about it. Laura is someone who I have known of for a long time. She's the founder of Talking Shrimp. which we get into how the heck did that end up with her like business name. So I've known her, a lot of people know her as like master copywriter. She's the co-creator of this course called The Copy Cure with Marie Forleo. Yeah, she's like very, very well known in the online entrepreneur world because of what an epic copywriter she is. So I loved getting to talk to her, getting to know her journey. How the heck did she get into this world? It wasn't like a straight line. And I love those kind of stories. And then why is she writing this book? So fun talking to her. You are going to love getting to know her. And I bet you're going to love the book too. She's just fucking real, honest. Uh, There's no shame. I mean, here, like, One of the things that she says, like this is in like the press release for the book. It says, this book is a hilarious collection of full body cringe, watch through your fingers, life lessons. What does it take to grow up cool and popular, master adulthood, fast track your success and always be your best? Laura Belgray wouldn't know. Doesn't that just make you want to go like, okay, tell me more. She delves into the confusing self-helpy culture that tells us to give it our 110%, but also to give zero fucks. So definitely love chatting with her. You're going to love our conversation and go get her book, Tough Titties. There's some awesome pre-orders, so don't hesitate. Get your order in right now. The link's in the show notes. Okay, so I love starting with... You can go even earlier, but I like talking about teenage years because I think that's when life can get really like, what am I doing with the rest of my life? Who am I? This. What are you doing next? What are you going to be when you're grown up and all of that sort of stuff? Which, oh, which, yeah, I don't know. You write about one thing that you wanted to be when you grew up, and I don't know if this is what you really always dreamed about, but... (laughs) But yeah, like in high school, who did you think you were going to be? The bartender. I fucking loved that you were like, I want to be a bartender. (laughs) But so I don't, was that something like in high school that you were already like, I can't wait to be a bartender? Or like, what did you think you were going to be? 
In high school, I probably thought I want to be someone famous. I want to write things, maybe write for SNL or or do something like that. But I don't know in what form. I, I writing tortured me. I hated writing essays. I hated deadlines. So at the same time as I was thinking I want to be a writer, I was also thinking God help me because. I don't know what I would write and my life will be hell. So when I graduated from college, that's when I was like, I want to be a bartender because I had no idea what to do with my other, with my real talents. I was going to say other talents, but I was the least talented bartender anyone's ever met. I was so bad at it, except for the rapport I was good at. And that's what I, I had pictured like, I thought it would be sort of a runway to becoming a writer because, you know, I would you know, put my elbow on the bar and listen to people's troubles and deal with all kinds of characters and write and probably jot the stories down in a notebook and then write a novel out of it. That was probably what I imagined. But I also wanted a built-in social life. Like I didn't want to get up and go anywhere. It's not like college was so hard and I took classes at 8 a.m. I didn't take classes till afternoon um, in general. Like I dropped Italian because class started at nine. But getting out of college, I was like, thank God I can sleep now. And uh, the last thing I wanted to do was go to a job that started at nine or at 10 and wear pantyhose or anything like that. I was like, I want to be a bartender. I want work to start at five or 6 p.m. And then and have all these friends built in and work with hot guys who will finally like me and see how desirable I am, unlike everyone before them. Like, you know, I, I, I pictured myself bartending side by side with like Tom Cruise and maybe between Tom Cruise and Rob Lowe and that, that kind of party life, you know, that's how it was going to be. And, um, the reality was far from that because first of all, nobody wanted to hire me for a bartending job. And then when I finally got one, it was at like just the biggest loser bar that had been hot on the Upper East Side. And it was right near... It was like in the middle of the most just drab, big apartment buildings. And it was a kind of a Broville up there. There was a, a um, cluster of buildings called Normandy Court, but they were, they were nicknamed Dormandy Court because it was all people like bros, um, sorority sisters and frat boys living to, you know, in like, yeah, dorm. Um, living like that with, you know, scrunchies and the girls in scrunchies and boxers and probably had keggers. And so that was my clientele at this bar. When anybody came in, it had been popular and then it was, and then it wasn't. I came in when it wasn't and I was a terrible bartender and it didn't last long at all. And uh, like my, it didn't make my dreams come true. But meanwhile, I figured like, if I'm not going to get any jobs bartending, I might as well just go to bars like it's my job. And that's what I did that summer and that f- for a whole year. I went to one or two bars like it was my job. I felt responsible for showing up every night and finding someone to make out with. By f- like, if 4 a.m. rolled around and time to, re- and the bartender made that announcement, like, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. If I hadn't made out with somebody by then, then it was a lost night. I'm going to go further back. But since that, yeah, since we were there too, and you're saying I made it, which again, I love this. So I didn't, I have not read the book cover to cover yet, but I was like popping around and I like love that sort of thing. But like, yeah, so you were like, I dreamed of being a bartender and like, 
And so like you were like going after it. Like, yeah, like making it your job to show up at this bar like every night. But you also it didn't even sound like you were drinking alcohol too. Because when people are listening and they're like, oh, I made it my job, that they are making up, you are getting wasted every single night. Like that's where I'm assuming people hear that are going. But no, you were like really like showing up, sitting in the front, like, come on. Like, I just can't wait for them to like hire me. Which by the way, that's how I got into... Being a sound engineer, which was my first dream, like I was like, I want to know what you guys are doing. I just never went away. And then they finally were like, okay, fine, we're going to hire you. (laughs) At House of Blues Chicago. I was like, it worked for me. (laughs) I'm going to make myself indispensable or if not indispensable, just like un-get rid (laughs) of-able. Yeah, I'm part of the family. And then they're going to like eventually be like, I guess we're not getting rid of her. We're going to have to start paying her. Um, But I love that you did that to be a bartender. (laughs) Like not what people would expect and no diss to bartenders. By the way, when I was working at House of Blue Chicago as a professional sound engineer, the cock, that's my best, one of my best friends from college and I joke because I got her a job as a cocktail server. She worked like four hours a night and made eight times what I did working 20 hours a day. And there were so many people that were bartenders and cocktail servers there that they had law degrees, they had these amazing degrees, but they just chose to continue being bartenders because they were they made so much money, <laughs> got to watch all like sh- all these shows, <laughs> like so I was like I also get the like yeah I pictured just wads of cash. I mean I'm I was lucky if I made enough to take a cab home. But I pictured wads of cash. And that's what I would see when I went to a bar, when I went to a hot bar, I would see just wads of cash in these bar, in these bartenders' hands. And they had all the power too. Like when you're a server in a restaurant, you have no power. People are looking at you signaling like, hey, they're grumpy. Where's my, where's my food? You screwed up. When you're on the other side of the bar, when you're a bartender, you hold the power. People are begging you to serve them. And no, but you're never in trouble. Like you can be grumpy, you can be a jerk and they like you even more and they'll tip you even better. So I was like, that's, that is the dream right there. That's where the power is. But then I really like my going out to the bar every night, like it was my job. It wasn't just, I kind of gave up on them hiring me. It was more that I was making up for lost time in high school. Like in high school, I felt like boys don't like me. And I wasn't one of the cool kids who went to clubs I went to one club once and that was Studio 54 and it was a disaster. Um, but I wasn't in that crowd that went out to, to Palladium and Peppermint Lounge and Studio and Pyramid Club every weekend or weeknights even and had a group and made out and, uh, and even more than that, like that they were all sexually active and, um, and hot. And I was not one of those people. And so I wanted to, when I got out of college that year, I felt like I was making up for lost time by basically being a bar hoe and slutting around. It's like, that's, that's how I'm going to measure my self-worth because uh, I failed at it in high school uh, because boys didn't like me. And now I'm going to succeed. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I understand that sort of like that measuring your self-worth in, uh, like getting the attention of the other, whatever, of, 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 of sexual attention, I guess, of anyone, whatever your uh, orientation might be. And I'm the same thing. So I was in high school. I was always the best friend. <laughs> so guys liked me, loved me as the best friend. 
So and still in my life, which is a real mind fuck, because I'm like, I'm awesome. These people love these awesome men love being around me, but like only not not with me. What is like? Um, so that was it. But yeah, I remember uh just sort of like I remember so badly wanting to have a boyfriend or just guys called me just so I could say that guys called me or that I had a boyfriend. And like, I remember this one guy that we met being out somewhere um, and he liked me, but I didn't like his outfit. Like I really was like, "Mm -mm." Um, so then he was interested in me and like got my number. And I was like, yeah, so-and-so called me just so I like went to school to brag about it. But then like, I didn't go out with him because I didn't like his outfit. And then the next time I saw him, he looked hot. (laughs) He was wearing a good outfit, but I screwed myself over. Um, He wasn't interested yeah, in sometimes me. Sometimes he got a bet on the dark horse. Yeah. <laughs> I hate it when that happens. <laughs> but like so superficial. And like I wanted so badly, but it was like, if I can say that I have a boyfriend or somebody calling me, then that means that I'm like worthy enough, likable, like not just by guys, but then girls. Like, let me be able to tell the girls that guys like me. And then that will be the thing that like makes me acceptable as a human so fucked up. Right. No, I, I remember going for a, a sleepover um, at my friend's house. It was a friend from camp and we were 13 or 14. I guess we were 14. And her friend came over, her friend Amy came over and Amy had recently gotten hot. Like she'd gotten, you know, gotten curvy over the summer and was wearing big hoop earrings and looked super cute and had gotten her braces off. And I remember her lying on the floor being like exhausted. And she's like, oh, guess who likes me now? And she was just so tired of winning, like so tired of having guys like her. And I was like, I've never in my life said that. Guess who likes me now? Like, it would be like, guess what? Somebody likes me. That would be the news. But in, in mine would be like, somebody likes me, but like, I would never like that person back. <laughs> the people that liked me, I was like, <laughs> no, I didn't like anybody who liked me. Like, if they liked me, something was wrong with that. That was more like, probably later <laughs> in life, if they were available. No, thank you. Um, but like, if they if they liked me, and they were taken, then I had to act on it. Then they were, then they were a prize. If they liked me just outright and were totally available, then me, no thanks. And there's something wrong with it. Not good enough. So, okay, going back. So you did go to college. Did you go to college and study writing? Because you mentioned like you were interested in writing, but also like didn't want to do the work of writing, but that like, or what was the path? Was it just like you graduated high school and so must go to college? That's the necessary next step and not really like know what you were studying, but like, I I have to go to college. Oh, yeah. It, there was never a question about going to college, like whether or not to go to college. I went to pretty prestigious all-girls high school in, I mean, it was a full school, um, K through 12, in New York, and you would never even consider not going to college. So, yes, I went to college, and not for vocational reasons. It was liberal arts college, and uh, I did study English. I became an English major. And that was mostly because I liked reading novels and hated reading textbooks. So there was nothing else I wanted to study. Like just the um, reading textbooks would be too much pressure. And I didn't want to do that. So I would take any course where the course material was fiction. That was that was what I wanted to do. And 
did not know. I still, I felt like, yeah, I would like to do something that involves writing after college, but I didn't really study it so much in college. I like took a strange psychology, like psych 101 class that involved creative writing because um, the professor was a, was it a, he can, he called himself a black lesbian trapped in the body of a white man. And, um, the, it was a very strange form of psychology class and like had us write, I guess, feminist, feminist, creative writing. So that was the only, that was really the only writing that I dabbled in, in college. And I wrote probably one, like one piece for the school paper, but not, didn't do anything that would promote me, like forward, further my career in writing. What was your like parent stance on, you know, college, post-college? Like I make up, they probably weren't like, go after that bartending uh, dream, Laura, or were they? Were they just like, whatever makes you happy? <laughs> My dad felt like anything that showed industry and made some money, he was, he was good with. He liked that. Um, he didn't, what he didn't like was me sleeping till noon and then going out from like 11 or midnight till four. But uh, he wasn't super happy about that lifestyle. When I said that I was going to look for bartending jobs, my mom was like, ah, really? Is that what you want to be, a bartender? And I was like, well, it's what I want to be for now. But she she gets way ahead of herself. And so thinks that that you know, <laughs> like that, that announcement, like I'm going to look for a bartending job means I'm going to be a bartender for the rest of my life. And in my forties, I'll be slinging, you know, martinis to, um, pimps and hookers across from Port Authority. So, um, so she wasn't so into that. I feel like until fairly recently, that's how most people did think about work, job, career, that it was like you pick something once you become the age of like adult whether you pick a trade or you go to college or something, and then that is what you do for the rest of your life. Like I feel like in the last, I don't know what time is anymore. I was going to say last few years, but maybe it's the last decade <laughs> that it is more like, oh, right, you can be this and then be this and then be that and then do that. You know what I mean? But I do, I feel like that's how most people, especially parents have thought like, yeah, like you go, you know, high school, go to college or pick a trade. And then that's what you do for the rest of your life. And thank God we're not thinking like that anymore. Yes. Thank God is right. Well, my parents had both pivoted in their careers and were great examples of that for me, that, that what you do um, doesn't have what you do as a young adult um, in your 20s or in your 30s or even in your 40s doesn't it's not your career isn't written in stone. Uh, my father switched from he was an industrial engineer for the airlines for Eastern Airlines when it was around and I think American before that and became a psychotherapist when I was pretty young when I was like around four or so. I mean, it was like a 10 year journey to, to getting his PhD. So he was, for most of my childhood, he was becoming a psychotherapist, but he practiced and found his life's work. I mean, he just loved what he did so much that he never wanted to retire. He wanted to keep doing what he was. He would say, I'm never quitting. I'm never retiring. I love what I do. I love helping people. He just loved it. And my mom probably somewhat inspired by him um, and also forced to change things up because she had had kids and, you know, couldn't have a full-time job. She had been in the 
she was a musicologist. She had a PhD and was a, was a doctor technically before my dad. She had a PhD in music and worked in the recording industry when, before I was born. She was the, they called her the lady engineer. And she worked at Vanguard Records and recorded people like Country Joe and the Fish and Joan Baez, et cetera. And then when I was in my teens, she, my dad made her read, you know, what color is your parachute and take a course. He was very into this stuff. He got her to take a course in finding her passion, her career passion. And it came with an internship and she found that she wanted to work in, in publishing and she got an internship in children's book publishing. And that's what she stuck with for the rest of her life. And she's still, um, she's still involved in this the Bank Street Children's Book Committee. She was president of it. She's in her 80s now. She's 85. So still obsessed with children's books. So both of them were examples for me of the possibility of switching careers, of not having to have what you did set in stone. And I think it planted the seed for me that I won't I probably won't find something I want to do for the rest of my life until maybe the second half of my life. Wow. Yeah. What a rare, I feel like, again, now more so, less rare, but I feel like that for like, yeah, growing up with parents like that and that, yeah, your dad having your mom take a passion test back. I mean, that was probably before it was online, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> Oh, there was no online. There was what it, online is what, that's what you stood on to, for the movies. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's also incredible that your mom was a female engineer because I like I was a live sound engineer and it's so rare to have females in either uh thing. So yeah, that's that was so I was like all like got the chills when you talked about that. Yeah, yeah, still. I mean, there's more, but still it's a much bigger percentage of male than female. But how yeah, that is such a great example to have grown up with and that you then didn't have that like pressure. Cause I feel like there often is this pressure on you have to figure out what you're going to be for or do for the, for the, and, and that, that it is that it's due, but we make it is be right. Like it's like, we got to pick a career, but it's not due, but we're like, who are we going to be in the world? And that is what we must do. And like, that's why I often talk about high school. Cause it can be like when you're starting of like, what's next, what am I going to be? And you're starting to like, then figure out like, then that's it is your self-worth, your everything, what you think people think about you all this for the rest of your life on like who who I am based on your career a lot of times or non-career. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I didn't feel pressure necessarily to decide what I'm going to be for my for the rest of my life, but I did there was definitely pressure to get some kind of job. And I was terrified of any job that where I would have to wear pantyhose and report to somebody by a certain time in the morning, especially. Um, and any of the jobs I looked at, I would just write them. I mean, I would look at the classifieds every, pretty much every day during that year where I was trying to bartend and just going out. And I would look for anything that said creative job, like creative opportunity. And they all turned out to have deal breakers. Like the next line would be, must be a self-starter. So I was like, well, that excludes me. Um, or must be detail oriented. I'm like, oh, I can scratch that one off. Not, not me yet again. And then they would usually turn out to be anyone, any of these that were promising at all would turn out to be for uh, selling printers or phone sex. 
So I couldn't find anything in the classifieds at all. And it's just like, I feel like selling, selling vacuums, vacuums was that was big, probably uh, one thing of them. at a point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it, I think it was. Um, and so, yeah, it was really hard to find that thing that I wanted. I wanted a dream job. I wanted something that would tap my talent, but I, in what way I didn't know, like use my writing skills in some way that didn't require me to be lonely and sad and under pressure. So I don't know what kind of writing that would be. I didn't know. Um, I did finally find something, but yeah, I want, I, I wanted a dream job. I wanted something that I loved to do and I refused to do anything I didn't enjoy, which is probably what they call spoiled. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe spoiled, but also like, how awesome. <laughs> how awesome. Like, because most people don't have that uh, perspective. And also, you knew yourself. Okay, I am not a self-starter. I am not detail-oriented. Like, that says something about you. Like, you're not willing to just, you know, do these things. Or like, you self-aware, self-aware. Um, so what happened after the, after the bartending trials? What was your next journey. Yeah. Um, after I was fired from my second bartending job, which was in literally the shittiest bar in New York. Um, it was like <laughs> the day I started there was the day after a, uh, a rocker named Gigi Allen played who, um, his whole act was over the course of several songs, he would take an X-Lax candy bar before the show and then shit himself on stage and throw it at the audience. So that was the kind of bar I was working in and got fired um, fairly quickly because I was so bad at it. And soon after that, as that was the winter, the next winter after I graduated from college, and then that summer, a friend from high school called me. She called me probably 10, 30 or 11 a.m. And was like, sorry, didn't mean to wake you. I was like, you didn't wake me. I don't sleep this late. But of course I was in bed. And she's like, I'm working with this author, Lisa Birnbach, whose name I knew. She, she was very famous. Uh, she had written the preppy handbook, which was huge back then when I was in high school. And she's like, I'm, we're working on her college book. I'm in the office with her right now. We need fact checker. We're fact checking. And we need more fact checkers. Can you come in? And I was like, mm, you mean today? She was like, yeah, today. It's like, oh, I almost said no. Cause I'm like, crap, that means I can't go to my step aerobics class at uh, the gym. And I was going to stay in bed for a little while longer. And I st I'm like, I want to watch all my children, et cetera. But I was like, okay, fine. I do need to do some kind of work. Maybe it'll be fun. So I went in and that job turned into everything else that led to everything else in my life because Lisa liked me. I had a good time. To, it was a, it was a really fun job. It didn't last for that long, but she took me under her wing. And, um, after she finished the book, went to a magazine as deputy editor, it was called spy magazine. It was like the cool downtown publication in New York, um, like a satirical, satirical publication. I think New York magazine has a lot of its DNA. And so does the cut. And uh, so she she was going there and she got me an internship. And so I and I sucked at this internship. It was six months. And um, I really the, the only thing I did fairly well was Xerox. It was my job to Xerox the gossip packs, which was all the all the gossip pages of uh, any of the magazine of the uh, newspapers every day and put them on editors desks. I didn't even do that 
that well. I should have done it early in the morning before they got there, but I didn't. I, I got there after they did, which was typical of me. And I was supposed to come up with stories. Like they wanted to, they wanted interns to become editors. They really, get, it was really an opportunity to show your chops. And so one of my responsibilities was to come up with stories for the magazine. And I was, I remember just the time flying by and me saying, I still haven't come up with anything, still, still don't have any ideas. And the managing editor took me to lunch and told me, you know, you can take initiative here. And I was like, oh my God, when you're told you can take initiative, that shows you have the opposite of initiative. I'm like, that's, that's not something that I have. But um, <laughs> I was lucky enough. So I didn't become an editor. I didn't have that. I didn't find that story that like, you know, bombshell of a story that blows up the headlines. And um, I was lucky enough to get hired by the ad side. The ads, when my internship was up, the ad side said, hey, we'll take her. Like we have a position here. And they hired me. It was mostly admin stuff which I'm terrible at, as we've established, but they had one assignment, a writing assignment for me. It was something that nobody on the editorial side wanted. It was an advertorial for a doer scotch. And if you're listening and don't know what an advertorial is, it's those pages in the magazine that look like they're part of the magazine, but in tiny print at the top, it says advertisement or promotion. And this was for doer scotch and, um, I was tasked with writing a full page of material for it, content. And one thing I wrote was a, a, a short essay on being an adult, which was ironic because I was still living in my childhood bedroom. Uh, and then the other thing was a, a quiz that I wrote called, Do You Party Like Your Uncle Marty? And it was a quiz to find out whether you are uh, a a young hipster or an old fart loser. And if you determined you were an old fart loser, the remedy was to drink doer scotch with the recipe in the sidebar. That was really fun to write. And then it came out. In those were the things that you wrote that got <laughs> picked up. Yeah, those were a full, I had a full page in Spy Magazine. I don't think I had a byline, but it was mine. I, and it was, I realized, or I maybe was told that's copywriting. I'm like, oh, that's what copywriting is. It's like writing short, fun things that I guess are part of advertising, but not really an ad. Um, and that was the start of my copywriting career. It's like, I can do this. I can, I, I can do copywriting. And then the next job I had was way less suited for me, um, spy folded. And I went to another magazine that was way more corporate and buttoned up. It's Actually, it was one of my favorite magazines and still is, but the, cult, the culture there was very different and I did not fit in and my boss hated me. And I have a, a chapter in my book, Tough Titties, called Bad at Corporate. And that's all about really how much she hated me and reasonably so because I was just the worst employee. And um, I may have mentioned a couple of times that I'm late. I'm not very good at being on time, especially in the morning. So that was an issue. I didn't want to write in the tone that she liked, which she described as elegant and up here, which she would say while waving her hand above her head, which is the, the symbol for over my head. But she would always say it needs to be up here and do that gesture. And um, so I lasted six months there. And uh, I... I was so bad at being on time. She 
curbed my what were called summer hours. She would always say, do you want summer hours? Because I would show up late and you had to show up an hour early if you wanted summer hours, which was getting to leave early on Fridays. So on Fridays, when everybody else was leaving the office with like their jackets, you know, hooked on their thumb over their shoulders and like a weekend bag, like going to the Hamptons. Yeah, have a nice weekend. I had to stay late. I had detention. I had to stay late and write the department newsletter. And um, <laughs> that, I did like the, you had I, detention. That was your actual. <laughs> that was detention. It really was. She did it as a punishment. It was, and I would have to stay like past six writing this newsletter. And she would stay late just to make sure I did my job and that it got distributed. Um, but I tried to have fun with it. I was a, as subversive as I could possibly be with it and would make jokes like, you know, is that a, is that a one sheet in your pocket? Are you just happy to see me? Kind of headlines like that. And um, people really loved it. They would come up to me and say, I now love the newsletter. I actually read the newsletter now. And I didn't realize it, but it was a precursor for what I do now, because now my whole, most of my living comes from writing newsletters, writing my emails to a list. Wow. Major alert. Don't miss out Blissoma, the best authentic green beauty skincare line that truly fucking works, is having their huge summer sale June 16th through 18th. You don't want to miss it, so you got to get on their list. Go to blissoma.com backslash summer dash subscribe dash sale. The link is going to be in the show notes so that you can get access to this sale and get 30% off everything. Now, why? Why do you want to order Blissoma products? Because they are cutting edge chemistry. It meets traditional herbal knowledge for the best of both worlds. Their original recipes offer a huge range of phytonutrients that benefit every skin need, including sensitivities and painful skin problems. They create balance within the skin and body. The products are formulated to allow customers to proactively and naturally manage a variety of skin issues. Seriously, they are the absolute best and it makes a difference what you're putting on your skin. Often we pay attention to what we're putting in our body, (laughs) food, but not on our body. I've been using Clean Beauty for over 10 years. And I've been using some great brands, but when I changed to Blissoma, I felt and saw a change in my skin immediately. Not like, oh, use this product twice a day for three weeks and then you'll start to see the difference. No, immediately. Go check them out, get on the list to make sure you get access to the sale. I'm going to tell you some of my favorite products. Free, which is a gel cleanser and makeup remover. It's so light Uh, but it freaking works. I love their hydration tonics. I love the Aura Brightening Serum, and I love their Lift Intelligent Energy Cream, a moisturizer. I, for years, have been using just oils and serums and was like, moisturizers are bad. No, most of them don't work great, but Blissoma, again, is next level. So check out the Lift Cream My favorite, favorite, favorite is the Restore Omega Miracle Facial Oil. I will use this at night, sometimes at day two. There's so much good stuff. They're deodorants. They have spray deodorants. They have stick deodorants. They're 
photonic light shifting SPF for your facial sunscreen and moisturizer. We all need a good sunscreen. This one makes it common, you know, like you just put it on and it doesn't have any weird stuff. It doesn't clog your pores. It doesn't turn your skin white with zinc. Go check them out. Again, go to the link blissoma.com backslash summer dash subscriber dash sale so that you are on the list so that you get access to 30% off for those you days. If you already missed the sale, Gus Joe, check their products out. They are amazing. Okay. So going back to the first, like you, yeah, you came on as a fact checker and that was just someone called you because like, they were they were just like they knew you and like likely knew you were they available, knew me. right? Like what? Yeah, they just knew like, I was probably she's, sleeping. She doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she doesn't have, yeah, a, she job, doesn't have a, job. a real job or whatever. We'll just call it like I'm sure, Laura's <laughs> free. Yeah. And then the when you went to the publication and like said so you did the internship and then the ad people took you on or something. There must have been something about it even before you found like, oh, this is copy and I think I enjoy writing it that made you stay. Because it sounds like you are not the type of person (laughs) who would have just hung out when like, oh, okay, and I guess I don't have initiative and I guess this, but like, right? So so was there something about being in that environment like, you know, that made you stick with it even though you weren't really sure what you were, you know, doing or what it would lead to? Like being around those types of people or... Yeah, it was the best social life I've ever had. I mean, there were parties constantly. I was, you know, 22, 23, 24. um, And it was just a fun bunch of people. And we all our friends became friends. And it was a good hang. And I would spend even when I was an intern making $50 a week, I would spend all of it at coffee shop, which was like this cool restaurant um, down the block. But we were in Union Square and that Union Square was up and coming and it was like teeming with models on go and coffee shop was where you'd see like party promoters and supermodels when either of those things had cachet. It was just a fun, it was a fun place to be. People were funny. I mean, it was kind of a humor magazine. So I, I met a lot of funny people and uh, my hours were fairly lax, maybe because I because I didn't get in trouble for them. And so, and I, I think I was, I felt like myself there. I felt liked. I felt appreciated. I think I, I would go to um, staff meetings and make jokes and people liked them and thought I was funny. So it was just a nice place to be, even when I was doing work that I didn't really like. And I didn't have to wear pantyhose. I wore baby tees which I had also worn to my corporate job after. Uh, they didn't really go over well. Like everyone was wearing power suits and I was wearing baby tees. And um, I remember like one of the guys saying, oh, it's pretty nippy in here, like to to his friend. I was like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I'm still, I'm still wearing my baby tees. And when you went to that corporate job, was that like you discovered, oh, this is copywriting when you ended up doing the um, added whatever they're called, editorials. The editorial. editorials and Oh, it is that. Okay, I was like, <laughs> but I just said it in a weird way. Okay. <laughs> yes, yes. Advertorial. Yeah. So Ad-ver. was that when you're leaving that place folded and you are like, oh, okay, I'm a copywriter. So when you went to the corporate job, was it like, a, like oh, they're hiring a copywriter? Like, was that, I am now a copywriter? Yeah, so a friend of mine from Spy went to this next job and 
she would, I mean, I would talk to her on the phone a lot and she was like, it's really hard. I eat lunch at my desk, if at all. And it didn't make me envy her at all or want to work there. But then Spy was folding and she said, hey, there's a job here. There's an opening for a copywriter. They really need somebody talented. And I gave them your name. And I was a little resistant. I was like, yeah, I don't really know if I want to work there. But I interviewed anyway because I needed a next job. And I was kind of hoping I wouldn't get the job. And then I did get the job. And I went for it. It's like, it's a, it's a good stepping stone. It'll be good on my resume. It'll be good for getting the next thing that whatever it is that I really want. And um, copywriting there was way less fun. But I still felt like, oh, I want to do this kind of writing. I want to write short, fun things. More fun than at the corporate place. It wasn't fun, but they were short. And I... And I had lunch with a friend. It was the, the friend who brought me there. Her husband came in to meet the two of us for lunch. And he had a new job at VH1. And I said, so what is your job? And he and I'm a TV head, like always obsessed with TV. It's been my life since I was out of the womb. He said, I watch a whole bunch of TV. And then I write those little spots that are during the commercials, but they're ads for the shows. And I was like, oh my God, that's a job. I need that job. And he helped me get that job. I went and got that job. He introduced me. Oh, is that what happened next from the corporate job? That's what happened next after the corporate job. I was fired after six months, you know, got my pink slip, went home. I, you know, I thought I was going to have another period of, I'm sure my parents were like, oh no, here she goes again. Like she's going to sleep till noon and go out till four. Um, And that was sort of my plan. But pretty, pretty soon, this friend of mine set me up with a meeting with the editorial director at VH1. And it was the nineties. There was money. There was this, there was money to spend. And she hired me to write a promo. She was like, yeah, sure. Here's a promo you can write. We need this campaign for like the 12 days of Christmas sweepstakes. And so I wrote my first promo for them and then became part of the like VH1 family. And as a freelancer, I, I kept getting hired to write more spots and then also got hired to write scripts countdown scripts for, you know, they had these top 10 countdowns and top 20 countdowns. And so my job for those was to write like puns on Hootie and the Blowfish and, um, and jokes of jokes about the cranberries or Shell Crow, you know, up next it's, you know, Cheryl Crow, um, all she wants to do is have some, is stay on the top 10. And, you know, here she is with all I want to do. So I, so that was my job for a while. And then I got the, the holy grail of promos, like that I always had my eye on since I started that job was to work, was at Nick at Night. They had the best promos on TV that I loved even before I knew what promos were when I was just home watching Nick at Night. And I got an, somebody introduced me to somebody at Nickelodeon and I got hired to write some, like a, a radio, radio trivia contest or something for the Munsters. And that led to getting a job at Nick at Night. Wow. And when you're like saying the job, like you're the dream job for promo, it wouldn't necessarily be like any promo writer's dream job. It was your dream job, like because you liked like that content sort of thing. Or was it like, you know, like, you know what I mean? Like, was it the job itself or was like you realized yourself and how you like to write or something? 
I think, I mean, that was a, they were known for great promos and would win awards at Promax, which I wasn't aware of at all, but I loved their, I loved the tone of the network. It was tongue in cheek. It was funny. It was this very kind of curatorial, mock curatorial, mock 50s serious kind of voice um, where they, they, I had seen their spots and they'd have spots like talking about if you, did you ever watch the partridge family were you too young it might be before okay, i don't know if i'm too time. young i just don't really like it wasn't one of my shows <laughs> yeah <laughs> it wasn't one of your shows um it, it was always like brady versus partridge family but the, oh yeah the, brady. there sure, was brady. a thing yes so there was one spot that I'd seen on tv before i knew about promos that was about reuben and his hairpiece, Ruben was their manager, and his hairpiece would like, whenever he raised his eyebrows, his hairpiece would shift. Um, and so the spot kind of called that out and said, it's the Ruben hair shift, and it's part of our television heritage. And so it's this very curatorial kind of museum lens on something ridiculous. And I thought that was so funny. I, like, I want to be where they write things like that. So these are sound like the absolute most incredible positions. And I also love that you didn't like, you had no idea even what copywriting was, that you didn't like go to school to be a writer. I don't, I just, you know, it's like, we always think like, yeah, we have to like figure all these things out. I'm like, yes, to studying and learning things. But also like, I don't know. I love hearing those journeys. And like, yeah, you, I mean, that seems like a pretty top notch position, it was pretty, it was pretty good. And the only way I could ever have gotten it was by, I would say, ducking under the ropes. I mean, I consider myself a late bloomer. I take a long time to do things. Usually I am late to the party, you know, missing the boat, like letting trends pass me by. Like, oh, I should have, like, I should have gotten in on TikTok and in 20, in 2020, that kind of thing. And I, I've always felt that way kind of, but this, the only way I could get a job like this was by ducking under the ropes and not paying my dues. So I really skipped a step. I don't know if that's in tandem with being a late bloomer or in opposition to it, but the usual path there would be to get an internship um, or a job as a PA, a, produ a you know producer's assistant, and work your way up and show, like, pay your dues, anticipate people's needs, get things done, and show what you're made of. And I, a job like that would have showed, would have shown what I was not made of, which was the right stuff for a job like that. I was, I would have failed at it. So the only way I could get these primo jobs were by kind of working around outside the system. And I got very lucky. Do you, so like in all of those things you were just saying about yourself, oh, the late bloomer, I'm not this, I'm not that. Have you always been someone that just owned and accepted those things about yourself? Or did there, there were there times and even maybe still that you are like, oh, I wish I was like this. Oh, I'm a this and it's a bad thing. Because I don't think any, like, I think that's what we do as humans. We make everything harder about ourselves instead of seeing, oh yeah, I'm like this. Oh, okay, I'm a little slower. Oh, I enjoy like sleeping in. That's not a bad thing. That we're like constantly like acting as if we have to be another way and the we must be wrong for the way that we are. And throughout and in the book and too, like you are very, which I've forgotten everything I've read while we're talking. Um, 
but I also loved how you very much, or is it even the subtitle? But like, you're very much like, yeah, like I'm a, you know, like you're calling yourself lazy and these things where it doesn't ever feel like, and that's wrong. But like, yeah, like this is like just even, yeah, what's the subtitle? I'm blank at it. It's, it's on living your best life when you're the effing worst. Okay. Well, yes, you do call yourself the effing worst. So I guess that's part of it. (laughs) Yes, I am. I mean, and, and people say like, oh, I know that's not true. Like as if I'm not saying that I'm a bad person, that I'm the worst person. I'm just the worst, you know, Oh, honey, don't talk to yourself, talk about yourself like that. Right. Exactly. It's just like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm the worst. And then someone might agree. Yeah, you are because I'm you know, either I'm late, I let something fall through the cracks. Um, I can't, I I'm canceling I'm going to your party, etc. Like, I'm sorry, I'm the worst. And I feel like I've, you know, I've disappointed people on occasion, especially in a professional setting, like, you know, your deadline to, you were supposed to have that in today. I thought you were going to, you know, bring scripts. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm the worst. And so it's, that's not necessarily a quality in myself that I cherish, but I do accept it. I think that some of it is just ingrained. And, um, one thing that I talk about in the book, is it in, I think it's in the chapter, Tap That Talent, a 20-something odyssey about trying to find my thing. It's a career chapter. Um, I talk about a guy that my friend was dating who was in film school. This is when we, uh, we were in our early 20s. And he was in film school. And um, he would, when he stayed over at our place, he would get up super early in the morning um, like, you know, 5 a.m. and leave probably to go fuck somebody else, but also to under the premise that he was going to mail his student film on VHS tape out to zines to every, you know, every time she saw him, he had someone else that he needed to mail it to, um, you know, a zine, a festival, this or that. And we were just, we marveled at his ability to get up early and go to the post office. And we called it because neither of us could imagine doing that. Like I still, I won't, won't go to the post office. I'm pathological about it. And we called it the post office gene. And we, we knew he was going to be big because he had the post office gene. And sure enough, he is one of the highest earning, highest grossing filmmakers of all time in the U.S. I mean, his like his films have the highest box office gross internationally anywhere. Rich as Croesus. Um, and I chuck it up to the post office gene. And so that's just it's just something that I'm lacking. It's genetic. It's a, like I just don't have it. And like, are we capable of change? Yes, to some extent. And there are certain habits that I've um, created myself that I'm very proud of. For instance, I now unpack the minute I come home from vacation. I unpack my suitcase and I used to let it sit and molder for like two weeks or like live out of it. Like, where's my underwear? Where's the clean underwear? And fish around for it. And now I unpack the second I get home. So that has shown me like, oh, I am capable of creating new habits and becoming a slightly different person, but not an entirely different person. <laughs> like I have to accept my nature. I, I, yeah, I love that so much. And I love also that even again, from like that younger age of like seeing like not Lord of like 
the, even that you called it like the post office gene, because it'd be one thing to just be like, wow, okay, that person has initiative and why, you know, again, because so often I think as humans, we make ourselves wrong. Oh, we're so lazy again, as if it's a bad thing. Oh, we could ever blah, blah, blah. Like again, but it sounded you like accepted it, not only accepted, but like, yeah, we don't. Oh, like good for, wow, he has, must have that gene. We don't have that gene. And like, great. So that's, we don't have that. You know, may, and also there's a possibility, sure, maybe one day, I guess I could be so excited about something I might, but like, great, I'm also okay now. And even the unpacking example, which I, I, that's also something in the last few years that I have started to do. And I'm like, who am I? Who is this person? Interesting that I I? just suddenly unpack as soon as I get home. (laughs) But it wasn't the person who left that there. There was nothing wrong with her. Like, you know, that's how, that's how she used to unpack and travel. Like, good too, that we don't have to be like making ourselves wrong. (laughs) for all the like who we are and that and like that and the changing where I think we we are just we make lives our lives so hard for ourselves by like they're like that so I should be like that or there's something wrong with me or that or blah blah which my book that came out last year is F the shoulds do the one so I'm all about like again being aware of all these things like wait why do I think like I should be different I should be doing this I should be blah blah blah. and one of the things in my book that I ended up writing that felt so good to say out loud and admit to myself in a good way was like, I'm not like a super motivated person. Like I've done a lot of awesome shit in my life and I'm really proud of myself. But like, too, like I am a very, I love laying and I love being lazy. I love singing and like saying that, like, I'm not like different than you. I'm not some awesome person. Like, you know, I wasn't born with like the, the <laughs> post office gene or whatever too, but like, great, I can make these things happen that I want to or in this way or, but like, yeah, I'm not making myself feel bad for like that. Like, yeah, we just, oh, we're always making ourselves feel bad for just who we are. And I love like in your stories and in your book and how you've been talking, it's just like, and that's, yeah, and that's who I am and that. And yeah, I wasn't going to be like that. No, initiative, I guess. I don't have that. That doesn't mean something's wrong with you. And you may have later creative initiative. <laughs> I'm Yeah, I'm never going to be a super fast runner. You know, I'm not going to... Uh, I'm not going to win any sprints or go to the Olympics for my running. So, you know, and I don't feel bad about that. So why should I feel bad that I don't, am also never going to have the post office gene? I mean, I do, I do think there's something to be said for creating habits that make your life easier. And some of my, some of my traits make my life harder. And those are the things that are probably worth changing. Like, um, Lateness, for example, I struggle with it. I don't like being late. It makes my life harder. I sweat about it. You know, I, I panic about it. And I'm like, gosh, it would be so, it would be such a kindness to myself if I left the house earlier or started getting ready earlier. Like, why don't I build in extra time? It's a strange thing. But things like laziness and wanting to, loving to lie around and loaf, I think that that is, it's not just something I accept. It's something and embrace. It's something that I have come to realize is an advantage over a lot of people I know, especially women who are uncomfortable with their day if it's not totally blocked out, if it's not booked up. And I, I can't think of anything worse than looking at my schedule and seeing thing, meetings back to back to back to back or tasks back. I want to look at my day and see nothing. That is my ideal day. And I feel now more than ever, now that I like hearing all these people talk about their, especially women talk about their anxiety about having free time or relaxing, I feel like it's an advantage that I don't measure my self-worth in how busy I am or how hard I work. I don't, I don't find that 
to be a, uh, that's not something I value. Same, same. And I too uh, can see how like, in some ways I'd be like, oh, that person's like this. Or, and, I, and I remember having this moment too of like, I guess, oh, we're just different. Like, because I especially too, I used to tour as a live sound engineer and I would come home from tour and then it was like, great, if I wasn't touring, then I was going to be in bed watching streaming things from my computer before even Netflix existed. It was like freetv.com, like the weirdest, buggiest stuff. Like I'm going to be in bed watching this for days. Loved it. Uh, and I would then, and I love that about myself. And then I would realize other people came in from tour and like woke up early and like did things and like were productive. And, <laughs> and I was like, for a moment, I was like, oh no, is something wrong with me that I do this? And I should be like, able to be busy again. And then I was just like, oh my God, are they okay? Do they know yeah, right, that they exactly. can rest? Like, like then it wasn't then realizing that some people do just are better productive. But then I also noticed some of those people, like they feel like they're not allowed to rest. Like how dare they? How dare they be lazy that they have to be productive, that blah, blah, blah. And that they would feel bad about themselves if they laid in bed, like letting their body rest. And so now I'm like, wow, I'm so glad I don't have that. <laughs> Yeah, club um, lazy, man. Uh, <laughs> club lazy. You're so you must have eventually got some sort of initiative because yeah, like I've known about you for years for being this master copywriter teaching people to write copy all of these things. So at some point you must have had some initiative to start your own business. <laughs> How did that come about? It actually my I would never have set about to start a business. I it would never have occurred to me like, "Oh, I can I'm going to have a business and, you know, and hire people to help me with it. And um, I just thought, I always thought a business was for someone with a business blueprint, a business plan that they went out to raise money for, et cetera. And, or that entrepreneurship was for people who created an app or a line of shapewear. It never would have occurred to me to start a business. And mine really started kind of by accident. I was in promos and I was freelance slash permalance at a couple of places and started taking on other clients and started calling my, you know, what I did rather than saying I'm a freelance writer, I would say I have a promo writing business. This, it felt more prestigious and I felt like it helped me charge more too. And then I segued into copywriting for entrepreneurs and people like that, people with their own businesses, helping them with their website copy, their email copy, all kinds of stuff like that, that they needed help with and really built the business around that, the business that is now Talking Shrimp. Um, I put up a website called TalkingShrimp.com and started taking clients and these things were accidental. I put up the website because a our account our tax accountant told us told me and my husband that we should incorporate because we've been reamed on taxes our first year after being married. So it's like the two of you should incorporate. It'll be better for taxes. Pick a name, preferably something with an available URL um, in case you want to use it. And came up with talking shrimp. It applied. It's like something that meant nothing or anything that was that applied to what my husband did. He is in restaurants or what I did. I was in writing and I wasn't planning to use it for anything, but showcasing my promo reel to get more promo writing clients. And it wasn't like, this is my business now. But I ended up putting, I was advised by my friend Marie Forleo, who was very early in the online business world, 
to put an opt-in on there to get uh, email subscribers. I didn't know to what end, but she was like, trust me, your list is gold. And, um, and wait, like when was this? Okay. So this was in 2009 was when we incorporated. So that's very early. That's early online coaching business, whatever with the (laughs) opt-in. It is. Um, and she, she told me, I, when my friend Marie told me like, you're going to have a blog. Right. And I was like, isn't it too, it's 2009. It's so it's way too late to have a blog. She's like, are you kidding me? No, you have to have a blog. You of all people, you love to write. You should have a blog. I felt like 2006 was the time to have a blog. And, um, and she pretty much forced me to have an opt-in. I, she's like, what's going to be your opt-in? I said, my what in? And she's like, no, you have to, you have a freebie. You get people to sign up for your freebie by putting in their email address, and then you send them this automatic confirmation message. She diagrammed it all on a legal yellow pad in her, at her kitchen table. And for once in my life, I followed instructions because she really knew what she was talking about. And she was making such great money. She was a coach and she would have, she had these, I remember telling my husband about it. I would say, Marie has this group coaching program. I don't know what it is, but she talks to a group of people on the phone, like all together as a group, like once a month and makes a thousand dollars from each of them and makes like $25,000 a month. And my mind was just blown. He was like, I have no idea what you just told me. I don't know what any of that means. But I was like, I'm just going to, I'm going to listen to her when she tells me to do something, even though I had no desire to become a coach or have a group coaching program. I didn't know what that was. So I put up an opt-in and I started a blog and started taking clients because she asked me to speak at her. uh, She had a live event. It was her first live event called Rich, Happy and Hot Live. And it was uh, 50 people in the Soho House library. And I... Uh, she asked me to talk, give a talk on copywriting. And so I just gave a talk on what I knew about copywriting. It had nothing to do with like direct response, online copywriting. It was based on what I knew from writing promos. And people came up to me after that talk and started asking me like, Hey, I'm a realtor. I really need help with my website copy. Can you help me? You're a copywriter. Can I hire you? And I'd say, Oh yeah, sure. I think so. Sure, I can take that kind of client too. Why not? And I've learned, I found out that I could, A, I could charge whatever I wanted. Like these people were willing to invest in themselves and their businesses. Whereas in promos, there was a budget, you know, there's a department budget. And when I asked for what I thought I was worth, people would say, like, oh, wow, that's more than I make. Or they'd say, well, you, you really have, what would they say? Um, they'd say, you are a good businesswoman. I'll tell you that what meaning like that's some chutzpah. And, um, but these private clients were willing to pay whatever I asked them. And I wasn't ripping anyone off. I was just asking what I thought my, my writing was worth and it made them money. My copy made them money. They could see that I'm going to pay this and it is going to change my business. So I'm going to make this back. So yes, I am happy to pay you this. Exactly. And it like it, it got them results in terms of sales and also in terms of them feeling good about their copy. Like, oh, it doesn't sound salesy. It sounds like a person. I really love sharing my website now. And the more they shared it, the more business they would get. So 
I felt like I was providing real value and charging accordingly. And so I loved this kind of client and I ended up segueing. It, it, like that was around the time when I, A, I was getting a little complacent in promos. I'd been there for like 15 years. And B, I was let go by my biggest client. My biggest, it was like a six figure contract that I had with them. And they let me know, hey, your contract is up. I was like, yeah, I know. And <laughs> she's like, well, we're not renewing it. So I was like, I need a way to, I need, a, I was devastated. Like this was happening at the same time already? Yes. Yes, I had. So this happened in, when I was let go from this contract, it was 2010. 2009, I had set up my website and put a blog on it and an opt-in and that kind of stuff and, um, and spoken at that small uh, event and started getting clients. So 2000, 2010 was when my, my biggest client in the TV world let me go didn't renew my contract. And I said, I got it. I need to find a way to make up that income. And I mean, I also cried and said, I'm so sad and didn't know what I was going to do because they were my, like, that was my home. That was my work home and my work family. But I start, I sent out an email saying like, Hey, I'm available to my, to my little list. I am available for these services. And I put up a real services page to make it easy for people to hire me. And they, the clients started coming in. And that's when I segued into like this copywriting business that I have now. I mean, that was an early version of it. And I no longer, I no longer take clients. Um, now my whole business is offering courses and mentoring and helping people write their own copy. Trisha here, and I just wanted to remind you that besides this podcast, I have several ways to support you. One, I have a daily inspiration app in the app store. It's called Own Your Awesome, and it has hundreds of powerful thoughts and affirmations. You get a reminder every day to go check the app and get the message you need. It's amazing how many times people be like, oh my gosh, it really does give me the message I need. I don't know how that works. <laughs> Magic. My book, F the Shoulds Do the Once. You can go to ftheshouldsdothewants.com and find all the retailers. It's available in audio, in paperback, in digital format. This is so many realistic tips and tools to use to get clear on what do I want and so that you're showing up for your life every single day, choosing it, seeing that you don't have to follow along with the shoulds. Everything is your choice and to get clear on what do you want because this is your life. I also have my From the Heart Substack community. We have a monthly Zoom meetups. A few times a week, you get written and audio heart talks from me, journal prompts. You can write into Ask Trisha. You can go to trishahuffman.substack.com backslash subscribe to join that. All the links will be in the show notes. And I do offer one-on-one -on -one work. Uh, I've kind of known as the secret weapon for people who are out in the world sharing themselves and their work. So this is all sorts of different people and for people who want to, writers, artists, creators, uh, even people who are like influencers. If you are doing anything, a podcast host, and you're putting yourself out in the world, it is so exciting. It is so thrilling. Um, and it also can be really freaking hard. As one of my clients and friends, Jason Mraz says in one of his newest songs, 
living your dream is hard work. And he talks about it's also worth it to like go on and try it. But that is the reality. It's thrilling and it's scary. And you can step into this is what I want to be doing. This is what I'm doing. And still so many people are stuck in questioning themselves, feeling stuck, feeling lost, feeling frustrated, looking around for what they think they should do next and how they should do it. And that just freaking sucks. So I have worked with people at all levels, like I said, including people that feel this call that they want to be sharing themselves, they have something to say, they want to be doing something, and they're just not getting out of their way and doing it, or they can't figure out how, or they just, again, keep questioning themselves. You are here to be you. You are here to do things your way. And I am that person that will hold you, that will question you to make sure you're showing up for yourself so that you're fully fucking lit up by who you are, what you're doing, and how you are doing it. So if you're interested at all, send me a DM at underscore Trisha Huffman. You can schedule a free 30-minute call. You can go to uh, yourjoyologist.com and find the work with me section to learn more and book a call that way. I would love to support you because like I said, I believe in you. I know that you are here to be yourself and it sucks. It sucks to be doing what you want to or feel called to do something that you want to, but you keep getting in your own freaking way. And I want you to know that's not a you problem. That is the human condition. And I freaking got you. All right, let's get back to the episode. Love that. That's so interesting how it happened from, uh, yeah. And and how did you know Marie Forleo? Was she just someone who became your friend? Was that like through, did she have something to do with VH1? Or, I mean, like, I know she was like, da- I'm like, I know she's been all over the place too. <laughs> she did dance at MTV, but that's not how I knew her. I met her in hip hop class at Crunch in 2003. Oh, wow. She was this annoying So met her in an exercise rookie. class. Gorgeous. Yes. She was so annoying in the front row, looking so good, doing hitting every move just right. And I was like, ugh, her, her again. She's here again. And then one day I started talking to her and discovered she was really nice. And we really, we hit it off. And she was a, she was a life coach, but also a bartender. And I asked, are you looking for more bartending gigs? And she was like, yeah, always I'll take it all. And my <laughs> my boy, she was the opposite of me. Initiative, hustle. Yep, go, all comes back to bartending. And uh, my now husband, boyfriend at the time, was the GM of a restaurant that was opening. He needed bartenders. So I got her another bartending job. And so we were connected in that way. I would see her when I visited him. I would see her at dance class. We would walk home together and we became friends fell out of touch for a while. And then she got back in touch around, around the time when I was in a creative rut at work and just at the, just at the right time. Okay. I want to talk about what made you write this book. And, but I also want to talk about, because I've seen um, you share about this and I, and I find it interesting, like that it even needs to be something that talked about, but I also, I get it and I don't, but like the idea of women choosing to not be parents. And like, I I have chosen to be a parent. I always wanted to be a parent, but I've at the same time never felt like everybody should be a parent. I would say I have like half of my friends are people who are choosing to never have kids and half have kids. And it's like, great, that's your choice. Um, 
but again, maybe it's like, I'm like, I'm always so interested. You're like, wow, like, do people really struggle with that? Is it more like, like, I'm not asking you, I'm not, I don't want to be like, oh, why have you chosen not to have kids? Like, cause that's whatever, whatever is your choice is your choice. But like, what do you think is the, like, I was going to say obsession, not obsession, but like this, like, I don't know, like such a big interest in it. And like, I keep hearing more about like, it, yes, let's talk about how we're not having kids, which is good. Because again, I think, of course, if somebody's out there, they're struggling like to see someone else. It's like you it gives you permission of like, oh, I'm not alone. Okay, this like resonate that. But yeah, I just wanted to get into that a little bit. Like, what do you think? So you're asking like, why is it a cultural phenomenon right now? Like people coming out about talking about not having kids. Is that what you're asking? Maybe. Or like, is there the, or like, is it, do you think it comes, is it as someone who is choosing that and then talking about it? Is it because like, is there this pressure or people constantly like asking you like whatever, like, yeah, I guess like the uh, talking about people talking about it more like, cause I'm always like, yeah, great. Good for them. Like, wait, why does this have to even be a thing? But then at the same time getting it, because if we don't, if we see, if we only see the examples of we should, and again, the shoulds, we should get married and have kids. We should blah, blah, blah. We should blah, blah, blah. And then you feel like something's wrong with you if you have not chosen that path. Yeah. Well, I mean, the reason that I'm so interested in talking about it now is because I had a really tough time making the decision. I was on the fence for a long time, for like all through my 30s. Because I didn't want kids, but I wanted to want them. I kept waiting to want them. Everyone said, you'll change your mind. It's going to hit you. You're going to want, you know, and they would say, oh, it's never the right time to have kids. You just have to go for it. And I was like, but I don't want them. And I did, I did feel pretty certain that if I had kids, I would love them and do my best as a mom. I don't I don't think that I was the most natural fit, you know, born to be a mom, but I I knew that it would work out either way, but I still didn't want I really liked the idea of not having them. I loved my life without kids and one reason it was so tough to come to the conclusion, like, I don't want kids to come to the hard no, was I think the there was so much pressure culturally and in the media when I, around when I turned 30, when I was in my early 30s, that's when Us Magazine started putting out that feature Bump Watch, and Demi Moore had been on the cover of Vanity Fair, I think, like, pregnant and, you know, loving her hot baby bump. And, um, like baby bumps were everything and kids and celebrity tots. They're just like us. I mean, all the magazines were upset, had baby fever and I did not have baby fever. And, um, I felt like there were no examples. I would Google endlessly, like trying to find examples of older women, older ce- celebrity women without kids. Cause I just wanted an example of somebody who was older, who had passed their childbearing years and was thrilled not to have kids and had no regrets. And the only one I could come up with, I could find in my searches was Dame Helen Mirren. It was, I just clung to that. Oh, Helen Mirren says she's happy because she doesn't have kids. And I was like, isn't there anyone else? And if you looked up like Oprah, be like, Oprah has it all, except she doesn't because she doesn't have kids. You know, she's got a, she's got an avocado orchard and she has a media empire, but she doesn't have kids, alas. And so she was sad. 
Uh, that was the media's perception. And it was always heartbreak for Jenny Annie because like Jennifer Aniston still hasn't had kids. Jennifer Aniston pregnant, Jennifer Aniston miscarriage, you know. Um, and then it was like Justin Theroux doesn't, you know, th their marriage didn't work out because she wouldn't give him kids. Like what a shrew. So all around me was this evidence that you were just less of a person, less of a woman, if you didn't have kids and you were going to regret it if you didn't. And that was terrifying to me. And so I'm talking, like I finally came around to my hard no because I found that my, my husband convinced me that we were on the same page, that he would be fine either way. And he would truly be fine if we didn't have kids. And after we, we had a, like one conversation about that, that finally changed, that finally made me feel comfortable with this, this, with the decision. And then people stopped trying to convince me that I should have kids. And so I'm saying all this because you asked like, why, why I was interested in talking about it? Why is there this kind of frenzy around the topic right now? It's partly because I want to tell other women um, whether they're younger and on the fence and try looking for evidence that you can be happy without kids. I wanted to report from the front lines, like no regrets. I actively love not having kids. Like I wake up, people say you don't know true joy or love until you've had a baby. And I wake up with true joy looking at my schedule and the freedom that I have. I love my life. I love my husband. I think that that is true love. I'm convinced of it. And um, I'm sure loving a baby is a different kind of love, but I don't know if it's truer. So I want to let people know that it is okay not to have kids. And then people who are maybe my age or older and still feel guilty about it, still feel ashamed and feel like people judge them for it. I just want that to be, I want them to feel the relief of like, ah, oh, I'm fine. I'm normal. There are other people like me and we're all good. We don't have to be moms. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was saying. Like, I don't get it, but I was like, but of course I don't get it because I have I'm not someone, I'm not living that experience, like whatever, but I make up and even from friends too, you know, when you said it was more that struggle of like wanting to want kids, but it's like, too, yeah, and that's another thing. It's like, is this sometimes it's like, wait, do you even want them? Or do you feel you should have them? So you've convinced yourself, like, we can't even figure out, wait, do I want kids or not? Because my entire everything the world tells me is I am woman. So I should have kids. I am terrible, selfish, this, I won't know true joy, true love without this experience. It's like, we it can't even, you can't even like hear yourself in like, well, do I actually want them? Or is that just what the world tells me I must do? And so I'm a failure for not or whatever. Evil. Exactly. It's <laughs> very hard if you don't, if you are not certain that you want kids, it's very hard to figure out what you really do want and what people are telling you you should want or will want. They're all warning you. I mean, there's a book, who is it? Uh, Mika Brzezinski from Morning Joe. Like she wrote a book called Don't Forget to Have Kids. I think that's the title of it. And I was kind of like, how dare you? Uh, <laughs> I'm sure some people, you know, it's like, don't be so involved in your career that you forget to have kids. And uh, I just, I resent that position kind of. And um, yeah, I think it probably doesn't occur to you that it's a thing because you're not judgmental about it. But most 
people who have kids are. Most people are in some way. They think they either feel sorry for you, like feel like there must be some sadness there, or they, you know, when they're trying to convince you when you're younger and it's a possibility, they they want you to have kids because either they want to share the joy of it or they want to share the misery. Like misery loves company. Some people want like just want to spread the word about it because they love it so much. And other people don't like the possibility that they could have chosen not to have kids. And that terrifies them. So you're an example of what could have been. No, totally. It's like, wait. And then perhaps at fault of like, yeah, it's like, who would want to admit that to themselves of like, wait, what if I actually didn't want to have kids? And so I shouldn't. And then it's like, because you don't want to think like, Oh God, maybe I made the wrong choice because you have these beings, whatever. But yeah, I mean, it also could like, it's like, great, but seeing that, okay, and now I have them and this is obviously I'm going to follow through with this and also, but so who, so great, that person gets to choose differently. It's, it's like even, you know, back to the, the post office gene, what, you know, again, ma- making ourselves feel bad of like, yeah, <laughs> I w- want to be a mother and I don't want to be a mother or a parent listen, like a parent, and that's okay. It's your life. Okay. Now (laughs) we've talked about the book, but yeah. So what made you write this book? Cause I, when I heard uh, whenever that your book, that you wrote a book, then my mind as knowing you as copywriter person, I just assumed it was going to end up being like, I don't know, teaching copy, I a guess. Copywriting book. And so then I was like, oh, wow, book. it's like short yeah. stories. And then when I got into it too, and I was like, oh my gosh, wow, this is so, so cool. Like, yeah, like was this something that had been stirring in you for a while or what made you be like, yeah, let me put these stories out into the world? This is the book that I always wanted to write. I always wanted to write stories about myself, a memoir of some sort. At some point, I like maybe toyed with making it a novel because it might be freeing, but I always wanted to write my stories. And I knew that going into this, that the more the obvious book for me to write for my audience and what publishers would probably eat up and maybe bid on would be a copywriting book or a marketing book or a personal development development book or some sort of how to. And what I wanted to write was more of a how not to. And um, that's what I insisted on writing because I have said this before. I like, I would rather like, you tell me to write a copywriting book and I would rather eat a bag of hair, pubes. I would rather eat a bag of pubes than write a copywriting book. And right now, anyway. So no, let's not be expecting day, that to be coming. Okay, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> if I change my mind, forget I said that. But it's just not, that's not the book I wanted to write. If you're going to write a book. A book is not an easy thing to write. And it's really not an easy thing to a project to put out into the world. It is a sl- It is years in the making, especially if you're publishing through a publisher. And then you have to sell the book and there's so much that's involved in it. Why would I ever do that with a guy, with a book that I didn't want to write? Like why bother? I'd rather like make a short course on copywriting, make a course. I mean, that's what I do. And it will make actual money. I suppose a, a book is not going to make money. It might, um, you know, in a, its roundabout way, like it bring new people to my audience and maybe I'll get to raise my fees or have something new to speak about on stages, etc. So there's clout there, but it's I didn't do it for the money. 
And, um, and accordingly, it's not me. I mean, so far, all I've done is spend money basically <laughs> on the marketing. Oh my God, I spent so much money. I spent money with help on writing the book, like a, a writing mentor who I worked with named Suzanne, you know, was paying, uh, who knows, I might've spent my whole advance on her and now I'm spending it again um, on all kinds of things for the marketing of it. But I would like, I can't imagine doing that for a book I didn't want to write. But so what, you didn't want to write a copy book. You just, you knew you were always wanted to write a memoir, like not always, but that was something like, you know, like, in, were you even in some of these moments? Like one day I'll write a story about this or like, you know, like how did that all, cause yeah, there's stories from going back into how old, like, you know, like, again, like this is a big undertaking. I feel like even especially because yeah, copy, it would be easy, even though you wouldn't, didn't want to, for you to write a copywriting book, a marketing book, a how to book and that, and to sell it. But yeah. It's hard to sell personal essays of somebody who's not a like world renowned celebrity. <laughs> like, so I'm like very much acknowledge you for wanting to do it and for fucking doing it. <laughs> right. What you're asking is why did I want to do this so badly that I would go up again, you know, everybody saying, well, you can't, yeah, rejection after rejection. Like, no, you can't. Like, I love the writing. This is what people would say love the writing. The sample chapters are hilarious. Um, love the stories, but unfortunately it's really hard to sell this kind of book unless you are a household name. And so, and so it's hard to sell it to a publisher and then hopefully not as hard as they all say to sell it to the public and it's going well so far. But I, yes, these are stories that I always wanted to tell that I love telling to friends. They would say like, oh, you have to tell so-and-so that story of the, you know, when you went to Studio 54 and your friend's mother came in and ruined the whole evening or um, the story about the filmmaker who I call in the book Martin Scorsese, but he's not Martin Scorsese, but how you, you know, you and your friends almost got into a foursome with him. And I've had all these stories that I wanted to write. And I love writing also about, about work and my like, I love writing about the 80s and 90s in New York because it was such a different time and capturing the feeling of how it was back then. And yeah, writing about work, the adventures in the workforce, deciding what you want to do, um, that whole coming of age and coming into your, your own as a person. I'm really interested in that journey. And I wanted to write a book that would both entertain people and make them feel relieved that they are not alone. If they, like, if you feel behind in your life, in your career, you feel like a late bloomer, you feel like you're sometimes the worst, you're not alone. There are other, <laughs> there are others of us out there and you don't have to be ashamed for who you are and try to fix it. Or maybe you can try to fix it, but in, like know that not everybody is a superhuman who you know, gets up at 5am and goes to the post office. <laughs> yeah, I love it. And I love reading memoir and personal uh, essays. And and I was going to say, you know, before you even got there, that I was like, you maybe didn't write a how to book, but in many ways, it may be because it's like how to embrace yourself. Because again, you're embracing these parts of yourself that people we can feel like 
we're punishing ourselves for. So like, I think that you are going to be empowering people to be like, yeah, like whatever. If you're lazy, if you're behind, if this didn't work out, if you, you dreamed to be a bartender and you were terrible at it, like whatever, like, you know, it's just like, obviously our stories are all unique, but I, I, that's like, for me, that's, I've always preferred, even though I did write a personal development book, but it is memoir stories in that. But it's like, that's how I like really learn and expand and embrace myself is by just reading other people's stories and seeing like, oh yeah, we, it's like giving us ourselves permission to be ourselves and to whatever, all of that things, embrace ourselves to be like, oh yeah, I could try this, do that, whatever. Like, yeah. So I, I'm so excited for your book and that, um, yeah, who knows what it's going to set loose in people. Thank you. Yes. I I do like to say it's not a self-help book, but it might help you anyway. (laughs) In in spite of myself, I might, my writing might help you. And yeah, permission is at the cornerstone of, that is the cornerstone of everything here. And it's like, it's the kind of writing that I like to read. Like I love, have you read any of Sam Irby's books? No, I'll have to look that. No, oh, she writes her, she, so her latest book. It just came out. It's called Quietly Hostile. And the one before it was Wow, No Thank You. And the one before it was We're Never Meeting in Real Life. And or might might be in person. But at any rate, her books are very permissive. Like she just says things about herself that you're like, oh my God, you can admit, you can say that out loud. Um, a lot of her stuff is about di- having diarrhea in public places. Like she has IBS and Crohn's and it's, and it's joyfully so. And so I'm really inspired by her work. I have always been inspired by David Sedaris. The highest compliment I've gotten about this is that it's da- like David Sedaris and Judy Bloom had a baby. That's my, that, that is the ultimate compliment that, I might have told somebody to say that because it's really, I might have thought of it myself and said, can you say this? But <laughs> you're like, you're like, actually, that sounds like great copy. I might have written that. No, nope, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it might, might be that I forced somebody to say it, but it is still a high compliment. <laughs> Uh, okay, I'm gonna ask real quick the questions I ask everybody. One is, what does it go to to raise your joy levels when you may be feeling bummed off or something? It's not like to be happy, but just be like, hmm, what can I do to give myself a boost of joy? I usually, I this sounds so prescriptive and corny, but I do. I go for a walk. I always go for a walk when I need to like shake it off when I'm down or tight or just um, fraught with you know, anxiety, going for a walk and listening to something fun. Like I'll listen to um, podcasts like Bitch Sash, which is a Real Housewives breakdown. And that's one of my favorites, something non-work related, something that doesn't make me feel like, oh, I should be doing this and I should be doing that. Oh, I should be working on my funnel, you know, my online funnel. Um, So that and, and watching, (laughs) probably watching some Bravo on my iPad, like putting away my phone, like making sure that my, I'm quit out of my apps and my, and email and all that and watching, just opening up that Peacock app on my iPad and watching some good old Bravo is, that's joy to me. Yeah. Love that. Sometimes we need a little just distraction, tap out. No, I was going to say, it's not a distraction for me. It's a pure obsession. It's my, it is nectar. It's like lifeblood. Well, I meant like distraction from yes. the things that might <laughs> totally. be. Totally. Yes. Hanging on us. But that I- is true. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I ask everybody to apply this phrase to their life. What is easiest for you is not always what is best for you. So what is easiest for me is blank. What is best for me is blank. Oh, geez. I don't know if that is, I don't know if that applies to anything for me because what is easiest for me is usually what's best for me. <laughs> I think like making Love my life it. easy, making my, <laughs> when my life feels easy, it's best. And so, yeah, I can't think of anything I mean, I guess I guess what is easiest for me, and it's not necessarily like means it's harder. Right. It could be like your default thing. Yeah, you're like oh, like what's yes. easiest for me is but yeah, eating. But yeah, you're pretty. Um, That's uh, what is best for me is eating spinach. But that, other than that, I can't think of anything that's not that's not best for me. That is easiest. But yeah, you're one of the rare people that actually like accepts yourself and for who you are and stuff too. Whereas like a lot of times people are fighting against who they are and making themselves wrong for it. <laughs> what is easiest for me is turning down scary opportunities, like speaking opportunities, things that make me nervous. What is best for me is going through with them and feeling great about it later. So there's one. Love that. There we go. Awesome. I'm so, it was so awesome to get into your journey and I'm so excited for your book to come out in the world. Thank you so much, Trisha. Thank you for having me and for all your great questions about it. This is really fun. I was so excited to get into this episode that I didn't do my usual, oh, before we get into it, make sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. So I would really love if you hit that follow button, you hit that subscribe wherever you're watching and also leave a review, share the podcast. I love having these amazing conversations with people. And so, you know, having the reviews, having the episode, the podcast grow is something that brings in more awesome people. So to me, huge favor, follow, leave a review share the episode on social media, tag me, tag Laura, go get her book. You can go to talkingshrimp.com backslash book, or you can find it, you know, in all the places. She is at Laura Belgray on Instagram. Again, those will be in the show notes. I am at underscore Trisha Huffman. My website is yourdryologist.com where you can find more things from me. I'm so excited to open up the shakeup. It is coming. So go to that page yourdryologist.com shakeup. I've been so excited about this. I had to put it on a slight pause, but that worked out in your favor because it's getting longer now. And um more exciting stuff to come, early bonuses when you sign up. So get on the list. If enrollment isn't yet open, go to yourdryologist.com backslash shakeup. For more things me, you know where to find me. And um, let's leave it with a last, uh, a last note, a last nudge. If you were on my podcast and I asked you, what is something that you do to give yourself a joy boost? What would your answer be? And then I'm going to challenge you to do that thing in the next 24 hours. Ready, set, go.